Hey there, folks. This is James Lipshaw, the producer of DJ Simulationista's SUP and a CMS instructional designer. Before we get started this week, I want to give you a little peek behind the curtain. We were testing for this week and next week's podcasts a new uh, sort of experimental recording system for multiple people. I would describe the results of that test as a failure, but an educational one. And so if you are an audiophile, if you are going to be super bothered by some weird beeps and hisses and the sound like a thousand little angels are tap dancing on the head of the microphone here, I would suggest turning back now. My instinct, as always, is to throw away stuff that doesn't sound good, but of course the content is so good this weekend, next week again, that I'm disinclined to do that. So in advance of this week and next week's podcast, apologies for the what I would call fairly low sound quality. We hope that you'll enjoy them anyway, and we appreciate your <laughs> forbearance and your holding of the basic assumption about us, and I hope you enjoy. Now back to your regularly scheduled episode. DJ Simulationistas. So, with Dr. D, Dan Raymer, and Dr. J, Janice Palaganis, coming at you from the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, Massachusetts. So buckle up your mannequin, and let's roll. Welcome to DJ Simulationista's Sup. You're here with Janice Palaganis and uh, Dan, you want to say hello? Well, actually, my name is Walter. My name is Walter. <laughs> uh, we have, I have a guest co-podcaster with me today, Walter Epic. It's an honor to be here with I'm you, Janice. I'm so psyched to be doing this podcast with you and uh, in our Simulationista uh, podcast party with Damien Shield. Sup, Junch, Junch, Junch. <laughs> Always bringing the music to the party. And Mary Faye. What's up, guys? What's up, Mary? So, Walter, we are going to be interviewing Mary today. Well, I couldn't think of any better way to spend my day than to interview my dear friend and colleague, Mary yes. Faye. So, Mary Faye is is known around the world as a famous <laughs> beekeeper. Is that what we get to talk about today? <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. Conversations with bees. I feel like people don't know that about you, so I just wanted to throw that little. Well, I know Mary, who who also has a, a PhD and uh, one in which she studied debriefing. I think we could coin a new phrase, which is not debriefing, but debriefing. <laughs> I love debriefing. It. <laughs> you know, we need a doctor a debriefing. So, uh, Mary Fay, well, Damien is our uh, senior director of the Institute for Medical Simulation, and Mary Fay is the associate director. Indeed, so... my partner in crime. Yeah, I think they call that exactly. uh, work husband and work wife. So Mary, what we would love to our listeners to know a little bit about mm -hmm. is your monograph on mm -hmm. critical conversations mm -hmm. with Sue Forneris and the National League for Nursing. Would love for you to just kind of give oversight on it. And then we're just going to sure. fire away questions as they come up. And uh, perhaps a suggestion we asked. Uh, we talk about Mary's trajectory into how she got there and I introduce her 
How far back do we need to go? Yes. As a way to, uh, yeah, right. I mean, you're a nurse, you're an educator, right. you've had multiple facets, and you're now a key leader in, in uh, this program. So I think folks deserve to know um, how you've gotten yourself here. And uh, in part also to reveal your background, as I think it's really seminal to this work that takes critical conversation and learning mm-hmm. to all okay, aspects sure. of the curriculum. My background, my professional background is that I was an adult critical care nurse for many years, uh, for 15 years, and in that time was often involved in education, you know, within service and staff development um, kinds of activities. And then as I became a nursing clinical specialist, I focused more on education, eventually moved into um, academic positions, started out as a, a clinical instructor at Georgetown University. Loved that. And um, actually, before I left the acute care environment, one of the physicians from the GME department at my hospital and I wrote a grant to the Women's Auxiliary and bought the very first simulator ever, probably in the MedStar Corporation at uh, Washington Hospital Center. And we started to use that in nursing orientation and in onboarding new physicians. But I knew I wanted to teach full time. And so eventually moved out of the acute care environment and uh, moved into academia. And while there, ended up at a small college that had this interesting thing that looked like a big doll sitting in the corner of the lab gathering dust. And I went to my program director and said, what is this thing? Oh, it's a simulator. We got a grant. I just don't have time to manage the grant. And I said, it's really cool. Can I use it? And I think like many of us, you know, sort of stumbled my way through initially in simulation, seeing the potential of this approach to teaching, not quite knowing how to unlock all of its potential and went to one of my mentors, Sharon Decker at uh, University of Texas and said, you know, I think this is a little more complicated than I realize. Um, I need to learn more about this. Where do I go? Go to the Center for Medical Simulation. And so I took my first course there in uh, 2008, I think. And that lit up every educator light bulb in my brain. And it was then that I, I knew that I wanted to pursue this as sort of the, the, the subcontext of my general career in education. And, um, so started doing uh, simulation and stayed doing simulation in nursing programs at the university of Maryland in the undergraduate and graduate programs, and just continued to learn more and more about um, debriefing. And eventually, um, as Walter mentioned, did my PhD. And in my PhD, did a survey of debriefing practices and pre-licensure nursing education programs in the United States. And then as part of that, asked the question, are there elements or features of these nursing programs that predict the use of theory-based debriefing as opposed to a sort of a random approach to debriefing? And found that a couple things made a big difference. And some of those things were that debriefers have training and that debriefers have their competence assessed. And so that really started the work I've been doing now for the past five years, which is really thinking about how do we train debriefers? How do we assess their competence? And, you know, what do debriefers need to know how to do? And so that's sort of the, the trajectory of my career and how I ended up being where I am now. I remember reading your dissertation when it first came mm-hmm. out, Mary, and referencing it a lot because at the time there wasn't mm-hmm. much research mm-hmm. around debriefing in um, nursing simulation. Mm-hmm. So 
I love, I love reading dissertations. Well, you know, I'd love to pose a question to Mary, uh, which is which is really interesting. As you know, Mary, one of the things I'm particularly interested in is how these formal conversations in mm-hmm. education, such as debriefing, uh, also relate to the workplace conversations that we have. And I don't know how it is for you, but for me, I know mm-hmm. that my debriefing makes me much more effective as a clinician in my workplace interactions. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. You know, that's such a great question, Walter. I, I think I, I might even go a bit more broadly and say that as as I've become more a student of debriefing and thought more about debriefing, it's made me a better communicator as a human being everywhere, workplace conversations, interpersonal interactions. And so I think that the skills you learn as a debriefer change how you relate to people, regardless of what the context is. And I think that that's really a big emphasis of this, the book is to take all of these skills that we use in debriefing and the way we relate to our learners in debriefing and take it out of simulation into multiple different contexts. There were a lot of things happening in nursing education around the time I did my dissertation. And, you know, part of my dissertation raised the alarm flags in nursing education about how few debriefers had any training or ever had their competence assessed. This was at the same time that the National Council of State Boards of Nursing published their national simulation study. And in a nutshell, that study looked at substituting uh, nursing students' clinical hours in the hospital with simulation time. And the findings in that study were that we could safely substitute up to 50% of clinical hours with simulation and get the same outcomes with regard to graduation rates, uh, licensure rates, transition into practice. And One of the realizations that came from that study was what I just said, which is the techniques that are used in debriefing are just a good way to teach. They're a welcoming way for for our learners to engage with us, and it allows us to do what Carl Rogers called seeing people as meaning makers and not just doers of correct and incorrect action. And that's really, I I think, kind of the essence of what I see as valuable in the teacher-learner relationship. And and what the book Critical Conversations focuses on a lot is seeing our learners as people who are constantly creating meaning through all of these interactions that we have. They're intaking data, they're prioritizing data, they're seeing relationships between different data points. And if we as educators can engage with them as they're doing that, as they're making sense of different situations that we're in, we have such a powerful moment of leverage in that relationship with our learners to guide them to the path that will help them become not just better practitioners, but also reflective practitioners. Because I think a lot of what we do when we have learning conversations is we're modeling reflective practice and we're showing them how to reflect on their own thinking for the purpose of understanding their thought patterns and for the purposes of helping them to think differently and perhaps more clearly um, going forward. So, Mary, you you highlight this notion of relationships, and I know we've talked about this in the past before, and for me, someone who comes from a sociocultural perspective on learning, which which highlights these relationships and the sense of community uh, within a community of practice, I also know that building relationships, establishing rapport, is something that's easy to read about in a book. And it's often hard to do. And we know from experience that with some people, you fall easily into conversation and the relationship mm-hmm. and rapport develop mm-hmm. almost effortlessly. And with other people, it's challenging. And I'm wondering, how do you approach that variation 
in how easy it is to establish relationships and particularly when it might be hard to develop relationships? Oh God, that's such a great question, Walter. You know, I th- I think part of it has, for me anyway, uh, you know, a big part of it has to do with just a recognition that if I agree to take on a responsibility and a responsibility that to me is as important as training this next generation of practitioners, then there's an element of having an ethical obligation to take everything that comes with that good or bad. You know, Janice and I have this this thing we bond over, which is the exercise program that we do. And and, oh, and, and no. it's no, oh, no, 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 no. Warning everyone, warning everyone, there's a CrossFit comment I coming. I purposely didn't even say CrossFit, Damien. But now that you mentioned it, no. But when you show up for these exercise classes, there are parts of it that you really, really enjoy. And there are parts of it that you really, really hate. But because I showed up, I made a commitment to do the stuff I hate also. So I think that you can transfer that to a lot of different contexts. Yes, there are some relationships that are easy. They're breezy. They're fun. They're comfortable. They make us feel great. There are other relationships that are a little bit rockier. And we don't enjoy them so much. But if I showed up to be an educator, then I've got this ethical obligation to figure out a way to make it work. And in those relationships, for me anyway, I think the burden is on the more senior person or the teacher to find the way to make the relationship work. Because you're looking for a certain outcome. You're looking to help this person become a better practitioner at what they are. And so in the same way that you don't always have to be happy and cheerful and Loving it every step of the way when you're exercising or doing anything difficult. The same with teacher-learner relationships. Some are harder than others. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mary, as I listen to your your reflections on that, I think, because I heard you say when you show up as an educator, and that makes me think of the fact that uh, when we look at communities of practice, that people actually belong to multiple communities of practice at the same time. And Etienne Wenger has a, a book, I believe it's called Landscapes uh, in the Communities of Practice, or maybe I'm misquoting that. But the notion is, is that people show up as an educator. They're also a mom. They're also mm-hmm. uh, someone who's part of a university community. They're also a cr- in the CrossFit community, et cetera. And I think, I think very often if we think about it as teacher-learner, educator-learner, we're sort of putting a divide in between us when actually there might be areas of common ground um, between us. And it, what goes on for me often is how do I find common ground with people, maybe about things that have nothing to do with with my role as an educator at that particular point in time. It could be that we both appreciate, you know, jazz music or um, a love of travel, or we recently dined at the same restaurant, but we connect over something that we share as equals. And that provides an entree to the relationship that then Mm -hmm. manifests in the educator learner relationship that we are actually there for in the primary, in the primary instance. So I think, it's interesting. There's a there's a lovely paper. I imagine you may have seen this, Mary, and others uh, by Lou and colleagues from Singapore, where they looked at various debriefing frameworks and looked at their potential to manage rapport, and that this notion of how we deal with rapport, how we look at face-saving maneuvers, how we're fair, how we communicate what the conversation about these sort of things plays such an important part. And I think there's more more to be done there. In, in, in this regard. And I think too, the, in, the intros with every course, I mean, when we do our intros in our course, that is my main um, goal is to figure out where I relate to people so that as we teach, I know how to relate a little bit better with 
each of the individuals. And the other thing I really like about what you're saying is, um, you know, like what motivates us to even just engage in the things we don't want to do when we are teaching. And I feel like for me, what motivates me is this um, socio-cultural perspective that everything's related. And if if I don't, you know, if I engage in that, it's going to make the things I do like doing a lot better. And so I have to keep telling myself that um, and, and just enabling myself to go there when I don't want to is, is something that I work on. I don't see this as um, incompatible perspectives, Walter. I think when I've heard Mary talk about the teacher-learner relationship and relating, sometimes I hear to relate with them as colleagues. And that, I think, has been a really helpful frame for me because, or for example, instead of finding common ground outside of the academic topic, to find it within. So with my trainees, we're, we're all students of emergency medicine. We're all improving our practice, what, regardless of where we are on our PGY status or the here. And I think I, it's easy for me to get myself to that point. And I think that that comes with thinking of them as meaning makers rather than vessels to be filled with information. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that I see this manuscript as a response to bringing a lot of people along to thinking of learners as intelligent, capable, autonomous, in charge of their own education. And when I read the teacher's role, I don't, I don't read as much of a divide as much as of a cooperation. I think so that's, I'd be interested in Mary's yeah, and yours. Well, I, I'll, I would love to chime in because yeah. I think what that's a lovely, uh, in many ways, idealized way of looking at things. And yet I know that in healthcare organizations, both in North America, in Asia, in Europe, hierarchy plays an incredibly important part of what's going on. And we need to keep that in mind. And I think there are some things where people are in very disparate points on the hierarchy and finding a place where we're actually on a similar place, similar place can be a powerful entree to a relationship. And it's, I think there are things that we do as educators, but there's also perceptions that the learners bring to the, to the, to the encounter. And um, that's why I'm sort of highlighting this notion because we can't sweep the hierarchies away, at so, least initially. But I, I know Mary has thoughts mm -hmm. too. Well, I, I, I would like to tie this back to your monograph on critical conversations, Mary, because what I, what I really appreciated about this is that A, it's a tool that people can pick up and um, be able to use quickly. Like it's not, um, there, it's, it's a usable, accessible. It was intended, right, to be practical. And what I like yeah. about what Walter and Damien are talking about right now is, you know, the differences in culture between the clinical environment, the classroom, and simulation. And one of the things that I appreciated, you focused on all three of these settings. And so speaking to what Damien and Walter were just talking about, what were the differences that you found between clinical classroom and simulation, like what drove you and Sue to separate those out and come up with separate tools? One of the ideas that we talk about in the book is having purposeful learning conversations. And when we talk about purposeful learning conversations, one of the things that we, we thought about was identifying what we called like high leverage moments, moments when you're engaged with your learner you understand your learner's thinking in such a way that you can really help them make progress in whatever it is they're trying to process or master. And 
as we thought about that, we realized that in the different contexts, there's sort of different degrees of freedom or different leverage points that, that you can use. And so, for example, in debriefing, it's generally, it's debriefing following simulation, that's generally a safe environment in that you've got protected time, you've got the attention, undivided attention of your learners, um, you're not impacting patient safety in any way. And so there's a lot of freedom for sort of exploratory conversations there. In the clinical environment, it's different because now within that context, you've got patients who are at risk. You've got other staff members who have agendas that you have to sort of fit into. And so the conversations are, are different in clinical environments, potentially shorter, potentially much more directive feedback rather than exploratory kinds of, of conversations. And then in the classroom, again, it's different because in the classroom, you're often presenting material that's brand new, as opposed to in clinical and simulation where they're applying existing knowledge in the classroom, it's brand new information. And so in some ways in the classroom, we thought it can be even a more intimidating environment because knowledge that's being presented is new. Learners have not had time to process it. In the classroom, we would expect learners to be much more vulnerable from the standpoint of not being able to um, ask questions or being concerned about looking foolish or being concerned about slowing down the progress for the rest of the, the students. And so in each of those environments, we thought about the concept, especially of psychological safety, a little bit differently. And how do you create a safe environment? And how do you give your learners the freedom to, you know, ask what they need to ask, say what they need to say, and still make progress, but but the progress in their in their development as as a nurse is going to be a little bit different in those different contexts. This is really exciting. I I think building off the manuscript and all of us here gathered today to get working on developing a more broader educational opportunity for uh, healthcare educators uh, to come and learn at CMS um, about this. I I just think it's awesome that we're putting all these accumulated uh, hours, thousands of hours and years of learning and experience towards designing something new together. And uh, so glad we're getting started by talking about it and learning from uh, Mary and from Walter. It is really exciting to be part of this whole evolution of what we're finding in simulation. I just feel so yeah, isn't it? throughout the, at least the last decade, just seeing uh, how much we've all evolved and brought it, all the knowledge together and built new things from it. It's and I, th I think that's the key is that it's, I think it's, we're not saying take what you know from SIM, it applies everywhere. Mary and Sue and Walter and others have really been thinking deeply about what are the differences, what are the affordances and constraints of various contexts and how do you effectively apply it? Yeah, and, yeah. and developing, I know that people who come to the courses here, most of the people simulation work is a slice of their responsibilities and so you know to really invest themselves in hypertrophying one area that's one aspect but to really think about what's the swiss army knife for educators and what are the rest of the toolkits and what are the rest of the, the thinking swiss the swiss, Ar swiss army knife and the swiss <laughs> cheese well, i want to be in switzerland so uh, not yet not swiss that's, cheese I, that's swiss my army reflection knife. on listening to, to yeah. the nuances and the the book is available, right, Mary? People can purchase uh, the book. It is. Yes, you can purchase it. It's yeah, on Amazon. So the tools are there and yeah. they're accessible. Critical yeah. Conversations, the NLM Guide for Teaching Thinking.
Mary, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And Walter, thank you so much for stepping in. This was awesome. Awesome. As if anyone can stand in. Vacationing in Palm Springs (laughs) in his retirement home with his family. It's like 60 degrees warmer (laughs) there. At least. Oh my God. I feel like Walter should have the last word because I feel like he's got something to say and can tie it up with a bow. So, no, I think this has been a This has been a lovely, a lovely conversation. Lovely to hear about the work that Mary's doing that really is focused on taking lessons learned and packaging them in the way so that people who are at the the front edge of education can actually bring this Mm -hmm. knowledge to bear. And I think that's something that really unifies all of us is this message of how do we take what we know and make it accessible, pragmatic, and uh, usable by people who really touch the most learners who then therefore will touch the patients. So I think this is a great conversation. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks so much, guys. DJ Simulationistas, what's up? is brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. Find out more about CMS and learn about our simulation instructor training and course offerings at www.harvardmedsim.org. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.